Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk about IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts Jatinda Candola and Will Dalton. How are you guys? I'm good, thank you. Good, thanks. Good, good. Okay, excellent. So news, as always, to start off with. Jatinda, do you want to go first this week? Yep, happy to do that. So uh, my news is related to the topic that we're going to talk about. So what I came across this week was that a number of London firms are releasing their real estate in the city instead of actually returning to their offices. So there's an article I read on Bloomberg that says that up to a million square foot is available for sublet which is a rise of 21% in real real estate becoming available. Sounds a lot. Yeah, it's massive. It includes some big companies, including HSBC and Credit Suisse. And there's a couple of news stories that are related to this. There's a parallel story of Deutsche Bank, who have told 5,000 staff at their Wall Street office in New York that they do not need to return until the 21st of July. So they're not giving up their real estate, they're just delaying their return. So that's July next year. And then there is a story about JP Morgan and Chase that have ordered their traders back into the office at Wall Street in New York. And since then, some of their people have managed to get COVID. So yeah, so that's my news. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because the um, I guess the people who come back in, that's not a great PR story, is it? Really? Uh, yeah, we, we ordered our guys back in and they started getting COVID. I guess it's inevitable, but wow, yeah. Should we be in? Should we go back in? Should we stay out? Mm. Should we go back in in July? Who knows? Yeah. What's the move here? Well, I mean, we're going to talk about it later, aren't we, I suppose, in terms yeah. of remote working. But it's it's a confused picture, isn't it? It is. It is. One thing that strikes me as well is having been going into London quite a lot recently for work with the client, it it's like a ghost town in some ways, but it's all the service industries as well that are going to be impacted by stuff like that. So if people are giving up city centre real estate, it's going to be amazing, isn't it? I mean, the impact, it almost doesn't bear thinking about, really. It'll change the shape and the look and feel of the cities realistically long term. So if, if some of these businesses don't survive or certain trades just completely die off, uh, they'll be completely different places. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be running a sandwich shop in the middle of a city at the moment. Uh, Will, do you want to go next with your new story? Yeah, all right. Apple event without the main event. <laughs> <laughs> Apple again. You love it. <laughs> I love it. I, you know, I do it just to continually annoy you. Yeah, um, for sure. So, so last time it was about the AirPod Pro. Now it's about the new Apple event. I think it was last week uh, where they launched lots of new shiny things, except this time shiny things doesn't include their biggest shiny thing, which is the new iPhone and it's ever, ever shrinking market share. Talking of which, you would think they'd be worrying about that, wouldn't you? Shrinking market market share in iPhone. But they're not since, uh, since um, Tim Cook, isn't it? That's right. Since he took over Apple, their market share has gone from 348 billion to 1.9 trillion. Nice. <laughs> with, an, with an ever shrinking market share on their main event. Anyway, what was it all about? So two new types of iPad, two new types of watch, a new way of paying for services. Bundle, they're bundling their services, storage and TV in one, which is where they're getting all their money from now. It's all about the services. And they've got some new Get Fit vids. <laughs> so I think Mr. Motivator or Joe Wicks, you know, from the modern COVID age, but cooler or not, depending on your age, if you can imagine that. Expensive. Yeah, I think it's a nod to, you know, Peloton. They IPO'd before COVID hit and they've been amazingly successful during the COVID period. Mm. Uh, and I think Apple want to get a piece of 
a piece of that pie, excuse the pun. I was wondering about Peloton. I wondered whether they'd had a big boom. I was going to look at that at some point, and then I keep forgetting because it struck me that they're pretty much like Zoom in that they've come along exactly the right time. Not mm. that there is a right time where COVID concerned. Obviously, mm. it's a dreadful thing, mm. but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's in some ways been fortuitous for them, I guess, that lockdowns happened. I wondered whether they'd had a big boom. I think so, because the IPO, when the IPO came out, you thought, God, that's overpriced, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. There's no way they're going to make that money. <laughs> but the stock price has shot up. It shot up. So anyone that got in on that IPO has made a lot of money. Whether it's gonna whether they can maintain that is another is another matter. But yeah, they've been they've been hugely successful. And I think that's why you see a lot of the big players getting involved in get fit vids. You see them all over the place. Uh, I, can you remember Mr. Motivator from Good Morning TV? Yeah, I remember <laughs> yeah, you know the guy in the Leotards? Yeah, what a reference. It was it was hysterical. But ultimately it's that. Ultimately, it's that. It's about people on screen doing exercise and you following. I love that that's your go-to example for this. Not like Kayla Itzines or whatever, who's got 11 million YouTube, uh, Instagram followers or whatever, and is, is far more, more current. It's, it's Mr. Motivator. No, no, Mr. Motivator. In fact, we should... We should probably we should probably use him on our homepage, I reckon. We definitely should. We should definitely tweet a picture of him out just in case anyone who's listening doesn't know who Mr. Motivator mm. is. We sh- we should definitely do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah you, you definitely you're missing out. You haven't lived if you've if you've never seen a Mr. Motivator video. <laughs> so my news story is the ARM and NVIDIA merger. So ARM, big, originally UK-based, uh, still UK-based, excuse me, but originally created in the UK, one of the biggest UK tech success stories. They make microprocessors and chips. They're in an awful, they were in an awful lot of smartphones. I'm, I'm not quite sure what their market share is these days, but they're still massive. They're huge in Internet of Things. They're all over, basically their their chips are all over the place, and they previously used to occupy a bit of a um, a sort of neutral position in the market where they would sell to pretty much anybody. And then people got interested, and there was a bit of a hoo ha a while ago when they were bought out by a Chinese company called SoftBank. Obviously, being a big UK tech success story, a lot of people felt that the government should have kiboshed that and made sure that they were able to carry on as a UK company and independent like the Americans often do with their big tech companies. But for whatever reason, they didn't do that. So SoftBank bought them out. I think it was 31 billion or something along those lines a few years ago. And they're now changing hands again. So they've actually gone to one of their customers uh, in many ways, NVIDIA. So NVIDIA, massive American company, very, very successful. Uh, They make graphics cards mostly for, for desktops and servers and things like that. So it's an interesting diversification for them. There's two kind of main use cases that I can see. They're going to try and weld ARM chips into their GPUs to make them even quicker and all that good stuff because they have quite a simple instruction set, which is very similar to the kind of chips that are in graphics cards, which also have quite simple instruction sets. And then also obviously just getting into the into the wider market, into cloud to edge kind of stuff, internet of things, bits and pieces like that. So it's a very interesting story. 40 billion they paid. So that's quite a sum of money. And yeah, they're going to stay in the UK. Apparently, they're going to still be uh, based here. For now. Apparently, they're getting a new research and innovation center in Cambridge, which is where they're based. So they'll get some some good stuff out of it. But yeah, it's it's interesting watching a UK company go through all these different changes of hands to various overseas buyers. Basically, we don't care, do we? We don't care about that. We're about about we just, we flog we flog anything, don't we? Basically, as soon as it becomes successful, flog flog everything. Yeah, yeah, we flog it as soon as it becomes successful. Right out out the door it goes. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about it, really. It's funny because 
it would be nice to see it grow into a billion. There's often talk, isn't there, about we haven't had our first billion dollar or billion pound tech success story yet. And ARM obviously are not, were not that big when they were sold off and stuff. They don't make anything, do they, ARM, either? Do they? They don't actually manufacture any chips. It's just about the IPR on the on the designs, isn't it? On the blueprints. That's correct. Yeah, they're in, they're an R and D. I mean, someone described them a while ago quite accurately as an instruction set designer because that's kind of what mm. they are, really. So mm. they create the architecture which goes onto the silicon, the instruction set that the yeah. processor runs on, which is sort of the basic low level set of instructions that you can issue to a processor. They design that and then the manufacturers actually build the chips. They're just amazingly energy efficient, aren't they? Hence why they go in these low footprint, you know, the yeah. mobiles and the Internet of Things devices. They just do not take any energy. Well, they're brilliantly specific for what they want to do, which is interesting because that's why NVIDIA are interested in them. Because obviously in a graphics card, when you're processing graphical information and stuff, you don't need a massive instruction set. You just need precisely enough instructions to do the job. And that's actually been, that's presented a few problems for people when they've been doing stuff like offloading, rendering in video editors and stuff like that to the graphics card. So trying to harness some of the power of these powerful graphics cards to help with productivity rather than rendering video games or something like that. I have no idea what you're on about, Julian. No idea. <laughs> I switched off. Okay, fine. I'll go down a rabbit hole. I shall stop. I find it fun, but everyone else won't. So I'll shut up. Let's talk about the main topic for this week. Good good stop there, by the way, before I just plow on. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That's why, that's why we keep you around. <laughs> So main topic this week, Jatinda, over to you then for the five levels of remote working. Thank you. So I'm going to talk about an article that Will introduced me to. So thanks, Will. No problem. So the article is called The Five Levels of Remote Working and why you're probably at level two. So it's written by a chap called Steve Galevsky for medium.com. And it actually was published a while back now, probably around May time. And I think I read it around probably two weeks after it was published. So it's something that's been around for a while. And it's something that most people will be aware of, of to some extent in terms of the, the topic and how everybody is being forced into new ways of working because of the, the current climate. Basically, the article itself talks through the impact of COVID-19 is forcing lots of companies to work remotely, regardless of how prepared companies are, and that they talk through these five levels of maturity in terms of being able to, to work at that level. So it introduces each of the five levels uh, right at the beginning. Level one is no deliberate action, where the company has done literally nothing to become a remote working org, that they're almost just having to react and work through how that's going to work for them. Level two is recreating the office online. So most people will be familiar with this, where people meet all the time. So it's excessive talking, meetings, and having real-time communications all the time as well. Julian, that's aimed at you. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Level three is adapting to the medium where the workforce are starting to work collaboratively, starting to share documentation and kit their people up for a better working environment. Uh, level four is asynchronous comms where an organization becomes so mature that it allows people to work to their strengths and has shared values and people are allowed to respond at the right time. And then there's level five, which is called Nirvana, uh, where the organization is actually better in terms of how they operate, how they work when working remotely than they are when actually together and in-house. And the way the, the kind of article talks through these is using an example of a company called Automatic. So Automatic is the company behind WordPress. So hopefully you will have heard of that, whose entire workforce is exclusively online and doesn't have any offices. 
It's a big company. It's worth about three billion US dollars, and it's made some significant acquisitions in Tumblr and WooCommerce. So it's been around for a while. Its founder has been publishing an interview with a, another podcast, which is called Sam Harris's Making Sense Podcast in version or issue 194. And uh, the founder is Matt Mullinweg, and he refers to their organization, Automatics Workforce, as distributed rather than remote, because remote implies that they have a central workplace, whereas this company doesn't. So that's a, another concept to be aware of is the distributed workforce. So the article itself, it opens up with an assessment that Mullinweg has offered, as well as the author, that the tools are only as good as how you use them. And then it links off to a funny article about somebody who's logged into a work system via remote access, sharing their screen for work, but is actually looking at porn. Well. Hold <laughs> yeah, my hands up. One, one, chaps. What porn was it? As a matter of interest. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't get into that much detail, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to check if you'd reviewed it or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so... Uh. So the article explores each of the levels and it talks through what they are in a bit more detail. Uh, level one is where the overwhelming majority of organizations were prior to the COVID outbreak in terms of they weren't really ready and they were literally trying to plan their return to work back into the office. So their whole focus was just on not remote working, but actually how can we get back in the office? Is that pretty much? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a company that hasn't prepared for this kind of uh, environment and probably has so many old business processes that they're probably not easily compatible to it either. Mm, mm. Dusty old files. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. And dusty old people. Mm. And then it talks about level two. So a company where most organizations have ended up at the end of March. So where there's loads of video conferences, over communications, loads of emails going out, no real structure or organization of any of that stuff. People calling each other constantly to share information and remain visible. So that's the other thing is don't forget me if you're working in a, a large company with a large workforce. It's the I'm working honest thing, isn't it? It's like mm. if you're sending loads of stuff, like loads of instant messages and emails and God knows what else, then nobody's ever going to say, what were you doing that day? Exactly. So people just spam <laughs> everybody all the time to prove that they're actually doing something. So this is where you, you get CC'd into stuff that you wouldn't normally get CC'd into just so that there's that kind of visibility of workers. It's the signal to noise ratio that goes horribly wrong then, isn't it? You just end up with so much stuff coming in. I, I have this a lot of the time at work and yeah, you, you just end up with all this stuff arriving and you've got to try and sift it then, which takes up a lot of your time and drops your productivity. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, level three is literally that. So it's where lots of, let's say, broken and, and offline processes are being imitated online and where people are chained to their machines nine to five. Uh, so it feels as if they're, they're kind of accessible and people are aware of their presence. Mm. So level three is explored a little bit further in the article and it discusses how organizations revert to relying on written communications. Um, so this is something that I think I've seen going from level two to three in terms of the maturity of the quality of what's written down 
And then there's an investment in equipment as well. So headphones, desks, all that kind of stuff. Shared repositories for information management. Meetings are only held when necessary with the right people rather than everybody. And your ad hoc comms because of your IM systems. So where you, you can just ping people on Teams or something like that to, to talk to them about what you need from them. Where the meetings mature as well, there's proper agendas and facilitation that happens. You're working to an outcome as well. And they're not just all hands calls on top of all hands calls on top of all hands calls where you're just cascading at mass. Level four talks about how organizations whose people communicate when it suits them, people take the time to think about what they're being asked before responding and that the focus is on the quality of being able to communicate in written form. Mullenweg at this point likes to, to articulate that this is where Automatic are at. They're a level four org. And I'd like to cite um, a quote from the, the article where he points out that globally distributed teams who work asynchronously and master passing the baton can get three times more done than a local team relying on everybody to be in an office between nine to five. So it's an interesting quote because uh, I didn't really see much in terms of metrics, in terms of how you might <laughs> I was measure that. Say, yeah, it's <laughs> mm. a little quote in the air, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now prove that with some sort of evidence-based stuff. It may be that he goes into that podcast that he's published on Sam Harris's Making Sense, that he, he goes into that information. But I didn't find it linked to the article as such, but it'd be interesting to see. Shall we challenge him when he listens to our podcast? That's a good point, actually, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he will. Yeah. So I'm not sure if they've ever been a office-based company. It doesn't suggest that they have. I don't think they have from, from the research I did. Yeah, I don't think they've ever had any office presence. So how would they do a comparison then? Exactly. And it, it should be contextual as well. So it should be their company to, to compare against that. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it goes into a bit more depth around level five. So uh, again, level five is an organization whose whole environment is designed specifically for distributed working. So everything they do in terms of their processes, their culture, their people, their business operating model it is literally built to be able to do that. So it talks through them and it talks about Mullenweg and, and Automatic being a level four org. And it raises some key points really that are worth just highlighting. One is around the concept of night owls. So the article explores that 30 to 40% of people are night owls and work better to flexible hours rather than from a 9am or an earlier start. And apparently they, they claim that some people have a stronger focus and attention span 10 hours after they wake up. But again, there's not many metrics behind that in terms of are they 30 yeah. to 40% of Americans or a global kind of workforce? I'd say I was completely the opposite of that. I think probably flexible working means both sides, doesn't it? Either you, yeah. you, you're really good in the morning, like me, and actually just fall off a cliff in the afternoon, like me, or you're rubbish in the morning and really good in the afternoon. But the point, I suppose the Point, I don't know, I'm guessing. The point being that it's about flexible working. It's not a rigid nine to five. It could be 4 a.m. to midday, do you know what I mean? Or it could be midday to 10 p.m. or something like that. It's enabling you to be productive when you're most productive. Oh, beautifully put. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I'd like to pick up on actually is, I mean, this is anecdotal, I guess. I'm like you, Will. I'm, I'm much better in the morning and I crash, but by mid-evening sort of thing and just don't want to do any more work at that point so, but emma who who also works for us is the polar opposite she's the ultimate night owl she can be productive she's most productive between about 10 at night and about 2 a.m 
it's, it's absolutely incredible how her focus is just suddenly there at that particular point. But the other thing that's interesting uh, about Emma is that as a very heavily pregnant woman who's planning out her maternity cover and, and sort of working, continuing to try to work for us, I was chatting to my boss, who's also a female at work uh, the other day, and she said it actually kind of filled her with hope to hear about Emma's plans as, as, a, as a sort of fellow woman. She said, it's interesting to hear that you guys are facilitating her ways of working through using this kind of technology, because we are. Ultimately, we all live in different parts of the country. And because of COVID, we're not coming into London and meeting up with each other as regularly anymore. And the fact that Emma is able to continue doing productive work and, and is planning to pick up her work again about a month after she has a baby and just work sort of 45 minutes to an hour where, here and there where she can while the baby's napping. Mm. And hope, well, while our toddler's asleep in the evening, because he sleeps from about eight until about eight or something like that. There's a lot of parents out there who now want to shoot me having heard that. <laughs> but <laughs> um, Long sleep. Yeah, but... It's really good for her because it means that she can actually contemplate continuing her career at the same level, but she can yeah. do it by working at somewhere between level three and four, probably on this model. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. I mean, is maternity leave a thing of the past? Because maternity leave takes women out of the workforce, doesn't it? It's very binary. You're either in or you're out. Whereas what you've just said, Julian, is actually there is a bit of time where you, you are going to need to probably dedicate 100% of your time to the newborn, but it's not, it doesn't become as binary. You can sort of dip in and out of work. It becomes much more flexible and, and you don't really need maternity leave because you are still being productive throughout your pregnancy and then following on from the pregnancy, the early days of, of the birth of your child. So there's a couple of things, I guess, on that point worth emphasizing. I'll, I'll be quick on this because we want to cover some other stuff. But the first thing is that Emma works part-time anyway, so she's not going back to doing a full-time job in the margin, she's going back to doing the equivalent of about a day a week in the margin. So it, it's not as big a ask as it would be for a lady who was working four days a week or something and was then trying to fit that in. But the other thing is um, the way that Emma is approaching the work is completely different this time round. So first time round, she she wanted a year off. So maternity leave is sometimes of, of a huge kind of soft benefit for mental health and for you know, being a first time parent, she wanted that full year off and it wasn't really about money or anything else or her career. She just wanted to make sure that she could have a whole year so that she could get used to being a mum. Now that both of us are used to being parents, it's a completely different calculus this time round because we know exactly what to expect and we don't need a year off this time to sort of come to terms with how much our life has changed. But the fact that this technology exists and we're at the level that we're at within DDK means that she has that choice, whereas previously she wouldn't have done. Without this tech, there's no way that she could go back to work. She'd just be out of the office. So it's very positive from that point of view. I think that would be an interesting blog or article is that, um, how to compare her journey from her first pregnancy to the second pregnancy and, and how things are different for her in terms of being able to work again. And especially on the on the softer side of things in terms of that mental impact of having another child and, and being familiar with your kind of routines and stuff. So I think the key thing there is the choice. That's the difference. It's the fact that she had a choice this time. And she works for an amazing company. Well, I mean, let's not forget <laughs> that. That goes without saying, really, doesn't it? What was the main takeaway then, Jatinda, do you think, from this this piece? I read it as well. I thought it was really interesting. I think it's very interesting that people are trying to apply some kind of governance and rigor and, and even if it's quite informal, actually apply a model to this now. Yeah, I guess the main thing is around you're only as effective as how you use your tools. Uh, and that's the point that you get from the levels and how to move between the levels. So having the right tooling is key. 
And then using those tools effectively is the second part of it. And then there's a few supporting factors around that. So a lot of people are struggling, I guess, in terms of how to recreate certain things from the office that aren't tool-based. So one of them is around being a part of the team. So one of the other things they talk about is that this company, Automatic, they get their team together for events every four weeks and they use custom-made apps to keep track of interactions that their workforce have been having to that point and then try and force people to integrate and and mix with others that they might not have been interacting with in that period. So that's another key component in terms of that mental health aspect. And bit bit big brothery though, isn't it? That happened with our client actually, is that there was some, there are tools that just show your day-to-day interactions through various different channels. And I was thinking while they were running through the report of all the people I talked to, through what channels I talked to and when I talked to it and how air quotes busy I had been communicating through these channels, whether we were just going back to sort of our old ways of working, you know, where you just, your, your measure of busyness was how many emails you got. Yeah. I know. Do you know what I mean? And now it's our measure of business is how many interactions we got through how many different channels. (laughs) Plus the fact that, well, hang on, is this a bit intrusive? Mm, Yeah. My take is is very much that more training is needed with this sort of stuff. So I found that the tools allow me to be productive from home. Yeah, definitely. But the problem is when you get this signal to noise ratio problem I spoke about earlier, particularly with things like instant messaging, people who haven't really had an instant messaging environment before just go mad on instant messaging. Anything that pops into their head, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll just send that to <laughs> Julian, you know, and you wouldn't do that in the office because you wouldn't get up from your desk, walk over to mine, tap me on the shoulder and go, I've just had a random thought. But it's so easy to do when you've got instant messaging. And so I found that particularly on days where my diary is packed out with Zoom calls or whatever it might be, and I I'm being spammed with instant messages and emails. My productivity nosedives. And a lot of the time I've now taken to periods of turning those tools off so people can't actually get hold of me because I'm actually doing work. <laughs> Otherwise, I can't because people are constantly trying to get hold of me. So I just kind of put blocks in my diary and go, right, I'm, I'm going off, you know, now and, and I'm not going to check my emails more than maybe three times a day or something like that. And if it's really urgent, you can just ring me because then you can force the issue if you absolutely have to. But for me, the problem is not that the technologies exist. It's great to have the choice, but it's rolling them out properly and getting people to work in a level three or four way is the problem, not enabling them with the technology. These tools have been around forever. And it's always been with remote working for me anyway. It's always been behavior changes and it's still around. So when you heard our illustrious leader, Boris Johnson, talk about how people need to get back to work, And what he meant by get back to work was getting back to a bricks and mortar office in London with lots of travel at the beginning and end of the day. You know, forgetting the fact that actually we've all been working through this pandemic through remote tools and probably been more productive. So it's that term that you're only working if you're seen and if you're in a bricks and mortar building. The language and the behavior needs to change so that actually being at home doesn't mean you're not working because it probably means actually you're being more productive. That is a very nice, very succinct quote to end that topic on. I'm afraid we're running out of time now, so we're going to have to move on to the recommendation section of the show. Will, do you want to go first this week with your recommendation? Yeah, sure. So a bit of light reading for me. The Lucifer Effect by a guy called Philip Zimbardo. Did you pick that purely based on the title? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. I actually picked it from another book called The Tipping Point um, by Malcolm Gladwell. However, back to Lucifer effect. So Lucifer, as you all know, is one of God's fallen angels. 
And this book is all about how good people turn evil and how easy it is, actually. Um, it's nonfiction. And he draws on a lot of, a lot of experience. Uh, one of the experiences he draws off is from, the, uh, from an experiment he did called the Stanford Prison Experiment. Have you heard of this? No. Nope. No, apparently it's a very famous experiment where he took, and it was in it was in the seventies. He did it. That's why I haven't heard of it, Will. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's still relevant. It's still relevant today. He took good old fat, good old middle class apple pie eating American kids, and and he placed them in a, an experiment which simulated prison life for two weeks. Half were prisoners, and half were prison officers. But as I said, the experiment was meant to last two weeks. But it only lasted a week because there was a complete and utter breakdown where the prison officers basically, you know, started abusing the prisoners. And it was very interesting to show how the behavior changed within the situation that they created. Uh, and then he goes on to and was asked as well by the American government to look at Abu Ghraib. Abu Ghraib was prison camp in Iraq where American soldiers, should I say, went a little off script in their treatment of the prisoners there. Point of it all, well, is it about nature? I, are you born evil? Or is it about nurture? You've had a hard upbringing. Or actually, is it about neither of those? Is it about the situation you find yourself in and that actually anyone can turn evil? Interesting book. Very good. So my recommendation this week is... I'll Be Gone in the Dark. So it's a book by Michelle McNamara, who was the wife of Patton Oswalt, the comedian who's in quite a lot of famous films and does a lot of stand-up and stuff. And she was a writer, extraordinary writer, actually. And I keep saying was because very unfortunately, she passed away, I think, at the age of about 43. She went in for a routine operation, which went south. And then unfortunately, she lost her life. And this book is absolutely extraordinary. It's about her personal crusade. She had an obsession with real crime, true crime. And she wrote a blog all about unsolved cases and murders. And she would spend huge amounts of time sitting in her daughter's playroom at night when everyone else was asleep, trying to track down these killers purely using the internet. So she didn't have any law enforcement experience or anything else. And she actually coined the term the Golden State Killer for this guy who was responsible for an absolutely horrific string of rapes and murders in California in the sort of early uh, 90s, I think it was, and maybe late 80s. I can't remember the exact time period. And the quote, I'll be gone in the dark, is something that he says to one of his victims. He says, do as I say, otherwise you'll be dead and I'll be gone in the dark, which is quite chilling. It's an absolutely incredible book. I definitely recommend reading it. It's really interesting. Unfortunately, she died before she was able to finish it. So her husband ended up publishing it posthumously from her notes, although most of it was written. And two years, I think it was after she died, they actually caught the guy. So not because of anything that she'd done. They do emphasize that in the book. It was because modern DNA matching, they were able to literally just go down through Ancestry.com or whatever and find out who this guy was likely to be. So she never got to see the fact that he got caught, but it's very interesting watching her piecing it all together. And it's now been turned into a series on HBO, which unfortunately I can't watch because I live in the UK and don't have access to it. But um, yeah, great book. Definitely worth a read. Probably come through Sky. At some point, but I don't have that either. <laughs> so why did she do... Why did she... <laughs> why did she do it? Because it was a love. It was a passion for her trying to hunt down these, these criminals through use of her own sleuthing skills. Yeah, it, it comes across very strongly that she just really wanted to do this stuff. Anyway, that's my recommendation. Definitely check it out. I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Jatinda, do you want to do your recommendation? 
Uh, yep. Yeah, so mine is uh, a docu series called All or Nothing that are available on Amazon Prime. So they're sports related docu series. So that what they do is they follow certain sports teams for several months on end, showing you behind the the scenes type of footage in terms of how they operate and how people interact. Uh, very famous people. The one at the moment that is being published is around Tottenham Hotspurs and Jose Mourinho as their manager. Oh, so he, your ex love. Yeah, <laughs> he's still a brilliant manager. I'm a Man United fan, by the way. And he's box office material himself. He's quite controversial. He's a very animated character. So it's brilliant, partly because of him. He's the star of the show. But then they've done other series on Man City as well, in terms of how they've done well and, and transitioned from being a, a club that wasn't really right at the top and were, were on their kind of way to improve them, their situation through their investments from the rich owners. And how Pep Guardiola's changed the way they play football. So, uh, yeah, I, I recommend it. I, I watch both the, the Man City and the, the Spurs ones. I think there's some NFL teams on there as well. But I, I really like how they go to behind the scenes and, and show the, the kind of things that everybody's intrigued in terms of how does this person really operate? How do these footballers really react uh, compared to what you see in the media in terms of them being prima donnas and all that kind of stuff? So, so, so they are prima donnas. Is that what it shows? <laughs> 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 it does kind of validate some of the things that you think in terms of, yeah, this person <laughs> is just, he has too much money and they're too young and they don't have any brains. And, and you can yeah. see how the, the challenge is for the manager to change that, for them to understand the importance of what they do and stuff. But yeah. Excellent. Sounds interesting. I think, chaps, that is the show. So thank you very much. It just remains for us to say a big thank you to everybody out there listening. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do on ddkpod at ddklimited.com. That's ddkpod at ddklimited.com. If you want to tweet us, we're available at ddklimited. That's at ddklimited. And on LinkedIn, we are Dalton Day Candola. So thanks very much, guys. It's been a pleasure as always. And everybody out there, we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks very much. See ya. Cheers. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap.